Would you please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1? This morning we will look at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. Last week we saw the crowds astonished with the authority of Jesus Christ, most especially in his teaching, and he exercised that authority to cast out the demon that had interrupted the synagogue service that day. And now this passage picks it up with the events that proceed just after that day, as well as what happened that very next morning. So we're in the middle of Saturday and then into Sunday in the the weekly calendar here in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. And we learn here something about the ministry of Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand his ministry in the past when he walked the earth. And it also helps us to understand his ministry in the present as the saints continue the work of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1 verses 29 to 39 reads this way. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray for your help. We ask that you would grant us humble hearts and attentive minds that would be hunger, hungry and thirsty for the nourishment that only your word can provide to us. Remind us today, Lord, of the satisfaction of the soul that your word gives. And we ask especially as we look at the life of Jesus, that you would remind us that he is the bread of life. That he alone satisfies our deepest longings and our greatest needs. And that he does so not begrudgingly, but he does so abundantly with a heart of compassion, full of love for us. As we come to your word this morning, Lord, we understand and believe that what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Misunderstanding Jesus is deadly. We know that all those who do not repent of their sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself says that the wrath of God abides over them even now, and they will die under that wrath. We know that misunderstanding Jesus certainly leads to spiritual death, yet there is a kind of confusion about Jesus that can also lead one to physical death. When I was younger and under the influence of the charismatic movement, in our church there was a married couple whom everyone loved and whom everyone appreciated. They were very hospitable. They would host regularly Bible studies in their home, meals in their home. They would open their home. It was a revolving door. Anyone and everyone was welcome all the time. They would minister to various needs. They were the kind of people that you would call when you needed a friend, and they were always there. They became so influential because of their kindness to people that they became very trustworthy in the counsel that they had given. Yet as the years went on, their charismatic tendencies seemed to grow. They would do things like speak in tongues and supposedly interpret what the other was saying and give that message to the people who were there. But eventually, they started to do things like claim to cast out demons and even to prophesy on behalf of God, giving special private messages to individuals that God somehow could not communicate to the individual but would do so through them. I remember one time watching the wife in the family pull a book off the shelf in their little library as she consulted which demon it was, what the name of this particular demon that she was needing to cast out was, and and the book instructed her on how to go about casting out this particular kind of demon. We now know that that's very strange. Yet when you're under the influence of something like that, and when you love someone, you don't quite realize that to be so strange. In this very same church, there was a very sweet older lady who had become genuine friends with our family and who was committed for me and my brother and even other kids in the church. She was committed and she would regularly tell our parents, most especially, that she was praying for our spouses whenever the Lord wanted to give us one. So thank you for that. Mine's awesome. She was the sweetest lady. One day, this lady got some bad news from the doctor. The diagnosis was cancer. And as she prayed and and thought and sought counsel about what to do about her diagnosis and how to proceed in her treatment, this couple came to her. And they told her, we have a word from the Lord for you. And of course, she respected them. She was influenced by them. And so she listened to them. The supposed word from the Lord for her, the the private word that the Lord wanted to say to her in her condition and diagnosis of cancer was that she should not pursue treatment because the Lord was going to heal her. 
This couple had been influential for years and years in our church and in our sort of inner circle. And so she listened. She heeded the counsel of those two charlatans. And it wasn't long before she was dead of the cancer they said, the Lord said, he was going to heal. In that situation, and under the influence of those types of people, when the result that occurred that day with the death of cancer, the cancer that these people claimed with their own authority, which was none, but with their own authority that Jesus said he was going to heal. When, when something like that happens in an environment where people genuinely trust those people, then it leads one to begin to ask questions. And sadly, oftentimes those questions are not so much directed at the false prophets that claim to speak for Jesus, but sadly those questions are most often directed toward Jesus himself. Why didn't Jesus heal her? Was he not able to heal her? Was he not willing to heal her? Did Jesus not really even care about her? Or perhaps there was something wrong with her. She just didn't believe hard enough. And so in those situations, it leaves us wondering why something like that would happen. And unless we hold the right balance between Jesus' power to exercise miracles, a power that he still has and wields, unless we hold the right balance between his power to exercise miracles and his priority in ministry, then we will be tempted to ask the very same questions when we run into those perplexing situations in life. So as we come to our passage this morning then, we learn how to rightly understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we ourselves, Lord willing, would never be deceived by a charlatan or a married pair of charlatans, and so that we ourselves could reach out to those poor souls who are being preyed upon, just like our friend was, and teach them the truth of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really prioritizes, so that whether God heals them in this life or heals them in the next life, they would know the real Jesus Christ. And so in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39, we see two elements of Jesus' earthly ministry that help us to understand it. We see his power to both heal and to cast out demons, a power he still has, And at the very same time, we see his priorities in ministry. These two elements must be taken together if we are to comprehend the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
which is why I chose not to preach the passages separately, but to take them together because they have to be held in a right balance. In fact, these are the two keys to understanding the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating, of course, in his death on behalf of sinners and his resurrection and ascension to the Father. But what was he doing as he walked the earth as a man named Jesus from Nazareth? These two keys help us to understand that, both in the past, but they also help us to understand his ministry in the present. So that all the questions we constantly have about whether or not God still heals today would be answered by these keys. So what are they? Well, first of all, the first key to understanding the ministry of Jesus Christ is the power of Jesus Christ. Verses 29 to 34. The power of Jesus Christ. Nothing striking to you about that. This is something that you know. Of course he was powerful. He's God. Yet I would remind you, he is also a man. And to the people who were looking on, they had no idea he was God. And so here in verses 29 to 34, we see the power of Jesus demonstrated right on the heels of the power of Jesus demonstrated in the synagogue as he exerted his authority as the crowd rightly recognized, most especially where? In his teaching. He then validated that authority and proved that power in his miracles. And so we pick it up then in verse 29, and here we have two miracles in this section, or really two accounts of miracles in this section. Verses 29 to 31, we have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, the first pope was married. He wasn't actually the first pope, if you didn't see the air quotes. Completely annihilating the Roman Catholic doctrine that priests must practice celibacy, it's not biblical. And then in verses 32 to 34, we see the results of the word that spread about Jesus as the crowd, as really the whole city came to Jesus. And at least for a little while, Capernaum was heaven on earth. So verses 29 to 31, we see the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. Simon, who would later be named Peter by Jesus. So if, you, if I slip up and say Peter, you know who I'm talking about. Verse 29 says, and immediately, indicating as soon as the synagogue service was over, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So the service is over, the demon is gone, the authority of Jesus has been seen most especially in his teaching, and word spreads all over the whole region. Apparently, the word spread all over the whole region that very day. And so the, the men, including Jesus, this, this newly appointed, this, these newly appointed disciples accompany this authoritative teacher back to Simon's house, a house which we believe we have discovered as best we can understand, a house that is not very far away from where the synagogue in Capernaum stood. You can visit that house where we believe, that we believe did belong to Peter if you ever go. Um, did you guys visit there? You can ask Ross all about it. He's been there twice. He didn't see Peter, though. He was somewhere else at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so they go to the Peter's, uh, Simon's house, likely because 
they were hungry. That's what happened at the end of the synagogue service. Tradition was you went back to someone's home and you ate a meal together. It would have been around noon or so in the day. And so just like all church-going folk do, they go to lunch afterwards. And they do so at Simon and Andrew's house. They leave the synagogue immediately. They go into the house immediately. And they're greeted in the house with some news. Verse 30 tells us, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever or with a burning, literally the word is, and immediately they told him about her. You might wonder who the him is if you didn't know any better, but you know who the him is. The him is Jesus, because Simon could do nothing about the fever. Andrew could do nothing about the fever. James and John could do nothing about the fever, but Jesus could. And they knew that. They had just seen something they had never seen in their life. And even better, they had just heard teaching they had never heard in their life. And so right away we see as Mark tells the story of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark lets us know that he is on the move and he is bringing the effects of the kingdom of God with him. And so they go to Jesus and they tell Jesus about this mother-in-law who was laying there ill with a fever. And other accounts, Matthew and Luke, tell this very same story, less read from Matthew's account And yet, what do you notice here in verse 30? Or perhaps what do you not notice? Did they ask Jesus any questions? Perhaps in the course of the conversation, they did say, Jesus, would you please heal her? But the gospel writers, Mark especially here, did not tell us that they asked that. I think Mark is illustrating for us That when Jesus knows his people need something, that's all there is. He's there. He will shepherd his sheep. He will take them in his arms, just like a good shepherd does. And so they give Jesus the news that Simon's mother-in-law is laying ill with a fever. And verse 31 then tells us what happened as Jesus got the news. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Jesus hears the news. He goes to her wherever she was laying in the house. In Mark's account, at least, he doesn't say a single word to her. But rather... He stretches out his hand. Perhaps she had the strength to lift her hand and take his hand. But I think it more likely that she did not have the strength to take his hand. And Jesus stooped down to take her hand. An act that no doubt any one of us who loves anyone we know who is sick would surely do. Take their hand. I'm so sorry. Can I pray for you? Do you need anything? Can I get you some water? Can I get you a wet rag for your head to calm your fever? And yet Jesus doesn't do that. 
He doesn't take her hand and say, I'm so sorry, is there anything I can do for her, for you? He takes her hand and he lifts her up. And what happens? The fever leaves her. Now Luke says that Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever, but Mark is careful to tell us that Jesus stoops down to her, takes her burning hot hand, picks her up, an act that she no doubt was sure she could not do, yet with one touch from the Savior, with one lift from the Savior, the fever leaves her, and she is completely healed. This is certainly the power of Jesus. But it's also the compassion of Jesus, is it not? The heart of Jesus that day was extended to the mother-in-law of Simon who lay there likely writhing in pain with a burning fever and nothing anyone could do about it because Tylenol did not exist then. He could have spoken to her. He does that in other healing accounts. He could have said, rise up, take up your mat and and go. He could have done any other thing to her. He's been known in the gospel accounts to take some dirt and spit on it and mix it together and rub it on the eyes of someone. He could have done this in any particular way he wanted to do. He is God after all, but the way in which he did it illustrates his love and his concern and his compassionate care for the hurting. This is who Jesus is. I think it's easy as we read through the miracle accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ to just simply read them and think to ourselves, yep, know it, heard it. But just try to put yourself in the room for a moment. What would it have been like to be there? What anticipation must you have felt as Jesus walks in the house? And the news of this sick woman gets to his ear. And then he goes to her. Your heart would have been racing a little bit more. What's going to happen here? And then you see him say nothing to her, according to Mark's account, and instead stoop down and pick her up. And what was the result of him picking her up? Not only was the fever gone, but Mark is careful to tell us that she began to serve them. Now this is not a you know, chauvinistic, masculine society where she now takes her place in the home. The point that Mark emphasizes here that she begins to serve Jesus and the disciples. The point is that she was better instantly. All her strength and all her energy was immediately restored so that rather than respond the way that the people in the synagogue responded, simply by talking about Jesus but doing nothing for Jesus, she responds the way that Mark tells us a true Christian responds. She serves Jesus 
and she serves as people. The culmination of Jesus' ministry in Mark is going to come in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word serve here is where we get the word deacon from. It is often used to to explain what it is to wait on tables. It means exactly what it says, serve. Whatever Jesus and his disciples needed that day, Simon's mother-in-law was on it. You think there wasn't some joy in her heart as she did that service? Probably she couldn't believe I was just laying there sick, thinking I was going to die, and now here I am making a feast for my friends and my Lord. The power of Jesus is both astonishing, but it's also personal and intimate. Jesus cared enough about one woman who lay there with a fever. He cared enough to take her by the hand and heal her. And her response was the way that every Christian whom Jesus takes by the hand and grants eternal life to, the very same response that we give to Jesus. You saved me, Lord. My life is yours. I live in eternal service to Jesus Christ. And so we have the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, and then in verses 32 to 34, we have the healing of many. Verse 32 tells us that evening, so they've had the meal, they're sitting around talking, probably in all honesty, laughing and so excited about what Jesus had just done. Perhaps even singing songs of praise to God because they knew that only God can heal. It was a party in that place. And then Mark tells us that at evening, at sundown, they, the city, brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Now Mark includes the detail that it was evening and that it was sundown to let us know that it was the next day. It was no longer the Sabbath. In the mindset of the people there, as soon as the sun went down, and according to their tradition, as soon as three stars were visible, it was the next day. The people knew that they were not allowed to do any work. They were not allowed to exert any energy on the Sabbath day. And so you can just see the people in their houses, windows open, watching the sky. Oh, there's a star. We just need two more. There's two more. Let's go. Get Jesus. They had to be so eager because they knew who he was. They recognized his teaching. They saw him cast out demons. And so what do they do? They go to him. Because those who know who Jesus is and what Jesus can do, go to him with their needs. And so they come. And Mark is, of course, setting up this, what you know if you're familiar with the Gospels, setting up the conflict that will soon happen. Jesus healed, mother, Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. But the rest of the town knew, at least according to their religious authorities, they were not supposed to be doing anything on the Sabbath. And so they waited for the sun to go down. They waited until the Sabbath was over so that they didn't get in trouble with their authorities. 
But Jesus was already bucking the religious system that man had created and had heaped upon God's precious people. And so the people come to Jesus and they bring, Mark tells us, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. I have no idea how many people that would have been, but it would have been a lot. And verse 33 says, then the whole city was gathered together at the door. I don't know what the population of Capernaum was back then, but it would have been a lot. And verse 34 tells us, and he healed many. And the, the many there is not to say he you know, sort of picked and chose who he would heal. The many there speaks to the quantity, the number of people. It was so many people that Mark couldn't even count them. Peter couldn't even count them. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. You notice the distinction between those who are sick and those who are oppressed by demons. Jesus knew the difference between a sickness and a demon. Still today, there is a difference between a sickness and a demon. Yet only Jesus really knows the difference. And so he heals them and he casts out demons. And just as he did to the demon in the synagogue, the end of verse 34 says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We're beginning to get some hints just as we did last week in the synagogue. We're beginning, <clears throat> we're beginning to get some hints That Jesus does not want to be known by the things he can do, but Jesus will be known by the message that he preaches. The crowds respond to Jesus because he can heal and he can cast out demons. Who wouldn't go to a man that could do that? Actually do that, not stage people in the audience and pretend they can do that. But could actually do that. So they come. Yet what do the healings, what does the the power of Jesus, even in the casting out of demons, what do they teach us about Jesus and what should they have taught the people about Jesus? Exactly the way that Matthew summarizes this miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew 8, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Yet the very next verse of Isaiah 53, that was verse 4. The very next verse, Isaiah 53, 5, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What does the miraculous power of Jesus teach us about Jesus? That the one who would bear the sins of his people has come. His healings 
and his casting out of demons verify who he is in his person and what he has come to do in fulfilling the plan of the Father to be the sin bearer for the people of God so that in him you could be forgiven of your sins. So why then do people overemphasize the miraculous healing power of Jesus? Isn't that the temptation of man? Give me, give me, give me. We're all tempted in various ways to arrange our lives in ways that are centered not on Jesus, but on ourselves. I have to accomplish my goals and my dreams. I only get one life to live and I've only got so much time to adventure, so I've got to take advantage of that. It's nothing new. This was the response of the crowd that Jesus fed in John chapter 6, miraculously with two fish and five loaves of bread. Jesus says to that crowd in John 6, 26 to 29, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the bread that, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It's nothing new for people to go to Jesus because of what they think that Jesus can and will do for them. But the right response to Jesus is not to go to him for what, they, for what he can give me to benefit my life, but for what he can do to make me right with God. We dare not diminish the power of Jesus, even the miraculous healing of Jesus, which still happens today and whenever he decides it to happen. We dare not diminish that, but we dare not place it over the priorities of Jesus. And this leads us then to the second key to understanding the ministry of Jesus. Verses 35 to 39, the priorities of Jesus. We've seen the power of Jesus and we need to see it. But now we see the priorities of Jesus and we need those priorities so that we rightly understand the power of Jesus. Verse 35 gives us the first priority of Jesus. He prioritized prayer. Yes, God in the flesh prioritized prayer. I'll ask you in a little bit what that means for our lives and our prioritizing of prayer, but I'll let it simmer. Verse 35 says to us, and rising very early in the next, the next morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You can imagine perhaps, how tired Jesus was. That day 
was filled with not only preaching for Jesus, which I'll tell you is exhausting, but then on top of his preaching, and in fact in the middle of his preaching, he cast out a demon. He fought with the evil realm of Satan. And then after that, he heals Simon's mother. And then after that, without even a nap, he spent likely hours upon hours healing everyone in the whole city. What does he do the next morning? He doesn't set the alarm because, you know, he needs some some me time. He's got to catch his Z's because, you know, we all need it. No, he gets up early before everyone else was awake. I'll remind you, Jesus was a man who got tired just like you get tired, who has to exert the same amount of energy it takes to wake up early in the morning before everyone else, who would have had the same temptation to just roll back over and hit the snooze button. They didn't have them back then, but you know what I mean. And yet, what did he do? He got up and he got alone and he prayed. Because he knew he needed the strength that his Father and the Spirit would provide. Jesus was dependent on his Father, and therefore he prioritized praying to his Father. John 5.19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. In John 14.10, Jesus says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. We should never mistake the life, the earthly life, the enfleshed life of Jesus to be one that's lived within his own divine power. This is what the writer of Hebrews emphasizes multiple times in his book. He was just like you. Because what's the excuse most often? Well, yeah, but that was Jesus. I can't get up early and pray because I got to go to work. And I get a little cranky when I don't get my 27 hours of sleep a day. Well, that excuse is out. And so he prioritizes prayer. We don't know what he prayed, but we know that he prayed. And then in verse 36, 36 to 39, we see his second priority in ministry, his preaching. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Jesus is out by himself. At some point they wake up, they look around, whoa, where's Jesus? We got some work to do. The people are still here. We got a church to plant. First mega church of Capernaum. The whole town is healed. Everybody, all the demons are gone. This is the best place to plant a church, Jesus. Don't you understand? So they go looking for him. And they tell him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, what are you doing? This is your shot to take center stage. Everybody's wanting you. Everyone's looking for you. The crowds love you. They're going to lift you up on a chair and dance around the city with you. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 38, and he said to them, 
Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus was not concerned with his popularity. Jesus was more concerned to preach the message that his father had sent him there to preach. A message that Mark tells us is summarized by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why would Jesus prioritize the preaching of that message even over healing people and casting out demons? Even though we see in verse 39, he went preaching and still casting out demons. And notice, he cast out demons in the synagogues, right? Because the demons love organized religion. And so they hide within the veil of organized religion, just like they do today. The best place for a demon is to be in the church, not outside of it. They can wreak most havoc in the church. And so why did Jesus prioritize his preaching even though he still wielded his power? Because his mission was to preach the gospel. And his power was to validate his preaching of the gospel. Which is exactly why on a few counts, but only a few in the book of Acts, the apostles could heal people. Why? Because it was proof that the gospel they preached was God's gospel. Why is healing so uncommon today? Well, first of all, it's called miraculous because it's not normal. It's called supernatural because it's not natural. But secondly, because the way you respond to the preaching of Jesus matters more than the way you respond to the power of Jesus. Everybody wants someone who can make them better anytime they want to be better. But not everyone wants to come to grips with reality that they are a sinner. And not only are they a sinner, but they are a sinner who must humble themselves and be entirely dependent on the life of someone else, Jesus Christ. And in a world that wants to be the captain of their own ship, that message just doesn't fly very well. And so we see the power of Jesus and we see the priorities of Jesus. He prioritized prayer and preaching. He wielded his power, but he did so to validate and to prove his message of preaching. This, I think, is the right balance to hold even as we think about whether or not Jesus still heals today. Does Jesus still heal today? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Do people walk around today and touch people and they just get up from a fever? I don't think so. If Jesus wants that to happen, he wants to use someone in that way, sure. But if those fakers on your TV really can do that, why are they not why are there still children's hospitals? Oh, those children just don't have enough faith, really? Cuz Jesus says to those belong the kingdom of God. And so we, we, we go wrong if we say something 
like Jesus doesn't heal today. Healing is, is gone. It doesn't happen anymore. That's wrong. But we have to understand that Jesus, Jesus was healing people so that he could show them that he was the one that the scripture said would come as the healer who would be the sin bearer. And after all, does man have a greater problem than his own sin? Jesus comes to fix the worst problem that we have. And sometimes he fixes those other problems. Sometimes he does it through medicine. And for the saint, sometimes he does it by taking you home to glory. So as we conclude then, as we think about the ministry of Jesus, I want to I give us two concluding questions to think about. Hopefully you've already gotten some practical implications of this, but just in case you missed it, I just want to give you two questions to think about as you personally reflect on this passage. Question number one, do we take our needs to Jesus? Do we take our needs to Jesus? Now, you probably will answer that question, well, yes, of course I do. That's a dumb question. You wouldn't say it, of course, but... But let me ask you, when something serious pops up in your life and catches you off guard, what's your first response? Is it? Is it really? Always? I think there's probably a percentage there. But we all know what it's like to have something completely catch you off guard and hit you in the middle of the eyes. And we all know what it's like for worry and anxiety to set in that very moment. And we all know what it's like to, rather than take the problem to Jesus, immediately spring into action as though we could fix it ourselves, even if we can fix it ourselves. There's nothing wrong with fixing it yourself, with self-exertion. I think that's part of what it means to subdue creation. But if that attempt is made without dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is wrong. We take our needs first to Jesus, and then we do whatever we can in order to meet that need. We see here in this passage the compassionate care of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see something of what's called the imminence of Jesus, the nearness of of Jesus. This is the implication and the significance of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. And what did Jesus say when he left his disciples? He said, I am with you even to the end of the age. Christian, you have a Savior that is so near to you, all you have to do is say, Jesus, help me. And he's there. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this reality. He says, there is no remedy like this. Means are to be used diligently without question in any time of need. Doctors are to be sent for in sickness. Lawyers are to be consulted when property or character needs defense. The help of friends is to be sought, but still, 
After all, the first thing to be done is to cry to the Lord Jesus Christ for help. None can relieve us so effectually as he can. None is so compassionate and so willing to relieve. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. 1 Peter 5.7 says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus loves to help his people. He is our intercessor and our advocate. He prays for us and he continually seeks the Father's forgiveness on our behalf because he's paid for every sin. J.C. Ryle continues, he says, let us not only remember this rule, but practice it too. We live in a world of sin and sorrow. The days of darkness in a man's life are many. It needs no prophet's eye to foresee that we shall all shed many a tear and feel many a heart wrench before we die. Let us be armed with a formula against despair before our troubles come. Let us know what to do when sickness or bereavement or cross or loss or disappointment breaks in upon us like an armed man. Let us do as they did in Simon's house at Capernaum. Let us at once tell Jesus. Do we take our needs to Jesus? And then the second question for reflection, do we prioritize the same things as Jesus? Do we prioritize the same things as Jesus? First of all, we saw Jesus prioritize, and I didn't mention it then, But we saw Jesus prioritize in verses 29 to 34, serving people over serving himself. This is not a beat up question, because I'm guilty too. But how many times do we say to people, I'm too tired to do that? Or maybe we don't say it to them, we just think it to ourselves and then we come up with a reason why we can't do whatever it is we're being asked to do. I'm just too tired. I need to sleep. Now, the reality is, if you don't sleep, you'll die. So you've got to get sleep at some point. But what does it really mean to serve someone? Does that not mean sacrifice, even sleep, time, money, food even? Do we prioritize serving people the way Jesus did? Do we prioritize prayer the way Jesus did. If the Son of God had to pray, how much more do we have to pray? And yet if the example that the Son of God set for us was to pray, how much should we pursue prayer? And I'm not talking about a sort of, you know, verbal acknowledgement to prayer. Oh yeah, I pray all the time. I pray without ceasing. Well, let me see your schedule then and see where you've blocked out a time of prayer. Well, I don't take specific times to pray. I just pray all the time as I go through my day. Oh, yeah? 
Jesus took specific, excuse me, specific times to pray. And he had a specific place to pray. Now, this is, this is not a command in the scriptures. It's not telling you, you better have a specific place and a specific time to pray. But as we see the example of Jesus, doesn't it just seem wise to have as a portion of our day a time where we get alone with God and pray? You, you say, well, I don't really know how to do that. Do you know how to talk to a friend? If you're in Christ, you can talk to the Father that very same way. Now, there, of course, needs to be some reverence there. But Jesus tore the veil so that we could approach the throne of grace, not with timidity, but with boldness. So if you're not sure how to pray, just pray like the scriptures teach us. Open to one of Paul's prayers and just pray that. Or just get alone with God and just start talking. God, I'm not really sure how to pray. I just need your help right now as I think through how to talk to you. I've got some burdens. You don't have to have a specific formula. Cry out to God. And then Jesus prioritized preaching. That doesn't mean necessarily that you should go out and preach, though maybe you should. But it was the preaching of Jesus that was the priority. And so then the the right question for us is to ask ourselves, do I prioritize the teaching of Jesus? Do I pursue Jesus and his word with the same desperate mentality as I pursue him when I'm sick or when a loved one is dying? Does my hunger for his teaching match my hunger for his power? Because it should. The people didn't go wrong by taking their needs to Jesus. The people went wrong by failing to understand that it was the teaching of Jesus they should have paid more attention to. And so we see the power of Jesus and we see the priorities of Jesus. And these things help us to live a life that is rightly balanced in the light of the ministry of Jesus. I began this morning by telling you the story of a friend of ours. Her name was Tony, who died because she listened to some charlatans who claimed that Jesus said that he was going to heal her cancer. They told her not to get any treatments for that cancer, but that he would heal her, and yet what killed her was her cancer. Contrary to what they said, Jesus did not heal her. Or did he? Because she paid more attention, even though she was deceived by some hucksters, Because she paid more attention to the teaching of Jesus Christ that she should repent of her sin and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can tell you with 100% certainty she stands in the presence of Jesus, cancer-free, completely healed, and awaits a body that will never again feel the effects of sin because she is in the kingdom of God. That saints, 
is what we have coming to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ministry to us. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would deliver us from ever being deceived by false teaching and that you also would enable us with compassionate hearts to help those who are deceived by false teaching. We know, Lord, that many are trapped in that slavery and that bondage and yet they really truly believe the gospel. They've just never heard the truth of the scriptures in certain ways. So we pray, God, that you would deliver them by the power of your spirit, by your own preaching, and by our help. Jesus, we praise you for your power. We praise you that you hold that very same power even today, and we praise you for your preaching. Preaching that endures even as your church continues to take it up. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us in that pursuit. In your name, Jesus, amen. I ask the ushers to come forward now as we take up our offering this morning. This is a time for us to reflect our gratitude to God for the gifts that he has given to us and a time also for us to consider the teaching of Jesus Christ that we have just meditated upon together from Mark chapter 1. Let me pray for this and then the men will pass out these plates. Father, we thank you for your gifts to us, most especially the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we pray that you would continually help us to be cheerful givers. We know, O oh God, that you, don't, you do not tell us how much to give, but you tell us how to give. And so we pray that our greater concern would be with how we give, that we would be cheerful givers and sacrificial givers. Whatever the amount Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with what we give to you. And we pray, O oh God, that you would continually remind us of all that you have given to us so that we would joyfully give to you. We ask that you would use these gifts for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.